morning. How are we doing? Good. It's good to see everybody this morning. Genesis 3 lays the foundation for truths that run throughout the rest of the Bible. Genesis 3 answers the question, why do we need a Savior? Genesis 3 shows us how the enemy functions. Genesis 3 shows the entrance of sin into the world. Genesis 3 is the foundation for prophecy in the Bible. We find the first messianic prophecy in Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3 is the foundation for substitutionary atonement. God placed man in paradise in chapters 1 and 2. In chapter 3, man messes everything up. And functionally, chapter 4 through Revelation 22 is God putting everything back together. His plan for redemption carried out. We are encountering this morning the beginning of God's redemptive plan for mankind. This is a turning point in the Bible. I want to tell you congratulations if you figured out that we're in Genesis 3 this morning. Starting in verse 1, we'll get through about verse 13, and then we'll finish up the chapter next week. There are only three times in Scripture that we actually hear Satan speaking personally. The first is here in the garden in Genesis 3. The second is in the first chapter of Job, and Jordan's gone over that fairly recently with us. The third time that we hear Satan speaking in Scripture is the temptation of Christ, and that's recorded in Luke 4. We should pay attention to the angle he approaches each of these instances with, because although he's been around a long time, and no doubt he is very wise in the earthly, the demonic sense, his tactics haven't changed all that much. He uses the same tactics today that he did back in the garden. The first time he speaks, he's slandering God, trying to get Eve to believe God's character is other than it actually is. Has God indeed said, and you will not surely die? And then he goes on to question God's motive. How dangerous is that? The second time he speaks, he's slandering man to God. So the first time he slanders God to man, second time he slanders man to God. He's calling to question the character of Job. He only loves you because you've blessed him. We'll see what happens when all those blessings are taken away. The third time he speaks, he's face to face with the God-man, Jesus Christ. He tempts Jesus using the same methods he employed to tempt Eve. And if Satan uses the same strategy to tempt Jesus that he used on Eve, we can be sure that that's the best he's got. To tempt the first man, same strategy as he's using to tempt the son of man. The temptation of Jesus was obviously the most important temptation that Satan would ever carry out. He employs the same things that he uses to tempt Eve. He has no other tricks up his sleeve. This is what he's got. And it's recorded here for us, for our learning, and for our edification. This morning, we'll take a look at this strategy that was used by Satan to tempt Eve and how the outcome of this temptation might have gone a different way had Eve approached it differently. Now, of course, when we approach anything that's as, what's the word, Um, ethereal, maybe not ethereal, but we're, we're making suppositions about how things could have gone differently. We need to approach that understanding that it didn't go differently. And so there's a reason for that, but we're going to talk about how we can apply the lessons that we learn to make the temptations that we face end up differently. And, and that's what I mean by that. So let's go ahead and read through the first 13 verses of Genesis 1, Genesis 3, and we will go back into it and 
look at this strategy Satan uses. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. What a tragedy for the human race putting himself above God, saying, my moral conscience is above that of God's. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. The word serpent is nakash, and it means shining one. Later, this word actually came to mean serpent. Cunning most simply means wise. In Ezekiel 28, 12, Satan is described in his unfallen state as full of wisdom. Even after his fall, he is wise with this demonic wisdom. The description of him in verse 1 seems to have a negative tone to it. So it would be like saying he was sly or crafty. He was deceptive in the smoothest way. And of course, serpents tend to be thought of as crafty animals. Serpents are even used proverbially in connection with wisdom. Even Jesus says in Matthew ten sixteen, Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Serpents in the garden were likely far more beautiful and majestic than we see today. They were probably much better looking, attractive before the fall. And they could probably stand upright so that they were eye to eye with man. God pronounces this curse on the serpents later in the chapter that they would crawl on their belly and eat dust. Just the fact that he tells them that they would be crawling on their belly insinuates that they were doing something besides that before. Now, whether that's walking upright, maybe flying, some other sort of locomotion, we're not sure. But that change seems to be implied in the text. But these would have been quite the magnificent creatures to behold. Now, who is this serpent? We all know who this is. Who is the serpent? Satan. But do you know how we know this is Satan? There are a few verses that tie this serpent to Satan very succinctly. Do we know where those are? We just came through one in Revelation. There was a couple in Revelation. Revelation 12.9 spells it out. 
So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, referring back to Genesis, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Revelation 20, verse 2, also links the serpent of old with the devil and Satan. It says, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. It's not clear, based on what we have in the text, if Satan indwelt one of these serpents for the purpose of deceiving Eve, or if he just presented himself as one, if he sort of shape-shifted. We know from 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen that Satan can present himself as an angel of light, as something beautiful. And he chose what was a very beautiful creature to represent him to Eve. And he still presents himself to us in a beautiful package, doesn't he? He never shows up as some grim reaper figure or some grotesque, you know, red man with horns and a pointy tail pitchfork. He doesn't show up to us as that kind of a figure. He packages himself as something beautiful. He shows up to Eve as something that seems really nice, wise. And the fruit looked good. It wasn't rotting with worms crawling out of it. It looked good. It was good for food. And he, the serpent, said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So one of the first things that you'll notice when we read through this passage is that this serpent actually carries on a conversation with Eve. They had this ability to communicate with each other. And it should probably surprise you that Eve doesn't say, oh no, I'm out of here, hauling to the other side of the garden because this snake was talking to her. I don't, that surprised me. I don't, maybe it didn't surprise you. I wouldn't have had to deal with the temptation because I would have been gone if a snake started talking to me. Because there's not a lot of supplementary information given, the best we can do is speculate as to why Eve didn't seem so surprised when the snake started talking to her. There are a couple of explanations that seem to be plausible to me. One, based on the timeline that we have in Scripture, it seems that Eve would have only been alive for a matter of days, maybe. Uh, Maybe up to a week. And her life experience would not have been very great. Of course, she was wise. Um, Of course, there was innocence there. But she didn't have a childhood to learn from. She didn't have other people in the garden to learn from. So it seems plausible, at least, that she didn't have the perspective to know that it was unnatural for the serpent to be talking. That's one possibility. The other is that the animals in the garden did have the ability to communicate with man in some form. And if we take this view, then we would have to conclude that this ability to communicate with man was taken away from the animals after the fall. There was some intervention from God there, probably to make sure that this kind of deception didn't happen again. Now, obviously, we don't see animals talking today. And in our natural world, it would be impossible. You know, they just don't work like that. But there are beings that are capable of interacting with our world in unnatural ways. You know, God, angels, demons, Satan, supernatural beings. It doesn't seem like much of a reach to say that they would be able to speak through animals. And I'll also remind you that there's another account of a talking animal in the Bible. You remember? Balaam's donkey. Numbers 22. The Lord opened the mouth of Balaam's donkey, and it actually spoke to him, and he understood what it was saying. That's fascinating. And there, the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey so that it could talk. 
it seems that Satan probably indwelt this serpent and used it, spoke through it to Eve. We know that demonic entities are capable of indwelling and controlling animals because of the account recorded in Matthew 8, Mark 8, and Luke 5. This is when Jesus cast the demons out of two men, and he permitted them to enter the pigs in a nearby field. The demons then went into the pigs. They controlled them so ferociously that they drove them off of a cliff and they drowned. So we know that this is possible and it's happened. So Satan probably uses this serpent, a most beautiful creature, to interact with Eve. What's the first thing that he does? He questions the word of God. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Did God really say that? Is that really what he meant by that? Or could it have been a more allegorical meaning? Is that really what God said? He starts peeling back the layers, the defenses of Eve. He starts broad by calling to question what God said. Then each time he speaks from here on through the chapter, he gets more bold in his accusations and he continues to dig deeper, peeling back more and more of these layers. Whenever the enemy wants to gain traction in our lives, he causes us to question God's word. Isn't that how it happens? Questioning God's word is at the root of all of it. And this happens communally, like as a community as well, not just individually. We've seen denominations of the church get led astray because they start to question God's word. They become so polluted by their lack of conviction when it comes to the word of God, that there's no right and wrong anymore. It's, oh, well, it's subjective. It depends on where you are, who you are. Where God speaks, we should stand firm. Where God doesn't speak, there's liberty in Christ. But we got to master the things that he does speak on first. And there's plenty of that in his word. The veracity and efficacy The usefulness of God's word has been called into question since this exchange in the garden. Throughout history, it's been happening. We've seen huge issues like the historicity of Genesis. The flood and the exodus all called into question, not only by the world, but by professing Christians. And we see this breakdown of the faith and This is why I'm so adamant about approaching the scripture in general, but especially Genesis, as the historical account that it's intended to be. Because this is the foundation, and when the foundation is eroded, the rest of the building collapses. We have to stand strong in our foundations as Christians. Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, we know that God commanded Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. However, That command came to Adam before Eve was created. There's no mention of God telling Eve directly not to eat of this tree. This should tell you something very important about the order that God has ordained in the family. The husband is the head of his family. Adam is held responsible for Eve's spiritual well-being. He's held responsible for conveying God's command to his wife. After they both sinned, 
and God came looking for them, who does he call for? Adam. Though Eve had sinned first chronologically, God comes looking for the head of the house, for Adam. He was held responsible for what happened in his family. Ephesians 5.23, Paul talking about marriage. And it's so funny because he leads you on and he makes you think that he's talking about marriage. And then at the very end of that chapter, chapter 5, what does he do? Throws in a curveball. He says, ah, but I speak to you of Christ and the church. In 5.23, he says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. A few verses later in chapter 6, the very beginning, Paul adds, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So this is the order that God has ordained in the family. Children are subject to the wife, who is subject to the husband, who is subject to Christ, who is subject to the father. 1 Corinthians 15.28 reads, Now when all things are made subject to him, Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, to God, that God may be all in all. I'll let you chew on that for a second. That's a tough one. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. That's what Eve says the command was. Notice that she doesn't tell him what God said with 100% accuracy. There's a little bit of discrepancy in there. First, she says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. This makes God sound a little more stingy than he really was. In reality, God said, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. She just left out a couple of words, but it changed the tone of that sentence. Verse 3, then she says, But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And as you probably noticed, this isn't exactly what God told Adam either. In Genesis 2, 17, God gives this command to Adam. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we see that Eve adds the fact that they couldn't touch the fruit. God never mentioned touching the fruit. She also quotes God as saying that they will die instead of they will surely die. Those are seemingly small alterations, but they essentially soften the message that God gave Adam. It's changed. Verse 4, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. That's interesting that the serpent said surely. You shall not surely die. Now, after questioning God's word, Satan hardens his position by outright denying what God had told Adam. You won't really die like God said. And then he questions the motives of God. Verse 5, For God knows, in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, this is questioning God's intentions for man. God doesn't really have your best interests in mind. He just wants to hide something from you. But if you eat it, you'll have knowledge like him. There's something to be gained from this. What a lie and what a tragedy. Adam and Eve were already created in God's image. They were like God. There was nothing left to do that could 
make them closer to God. In reality, what Satan tempted Eve to do separated them from God. It created this chasm between God and man that man could not cross on his own accord. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Verse 6 really sums up Satan's strategy as he approaches someone with a temptation. There are three fronts on which he tempts, as outlined in 1 John 2.16. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These three battlefronts are the same ones that he uses against Jesus as he was tempted in the wilderness, and he still uses against us. That event of Jesus' temptation is recorded in Luke 4. Jesus was fasting in the wilderness when he was approached by Satan. Satan then tempts Jesus using the same tactic he used against Eve, but Jesus is able to resist his temptations because he stood firm on the word of God. That's a big difference that we need to pay attention to here. Now, I do want us to turn together to Luke 4 real quick. Keep a tab in Genesis 3 because we'll be coming right back. Luke chapter 4, after Jesus was baptized, he was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. And verse 3 is going to start with Satan's dialogue to Christ. It says, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. At this point in the wilderness, Jesus was starving. He was fasting for these 40 days. He was hungry. The text even says he was hungry. I'm sure that this bread would have been appealing to him. What is this first appeal that Satan uses? Lust of the flesh. The son of man was hungry. And turning those stones into bread would have satisfied his fleshly desires. In the same way, Eve saw that the tree was good for food. She saw that it was good for food. It could satisfy that fleshly desire of needing something to eat. Jesus responds to Satan by quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. He stands firm in the word of God. And by the way, he stands firm in the Old Testament. Interesting note there. Of course, Jesus didn't have the New Testament to reference. He skirts every one of his temptations by standing firm in the Old Testament. Verse 5, Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you, and their glory. For this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now what is this appeal that Satan is using? The second, lust of the eyes. He appeals to the lust of the eyes by showing Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, taking him up to an exceedingly high mountain in some translations. Those kingdoms were Satan's to give. 
And he can give them to whomever he chooses. And Jesus doesn't dispute that fact. By the way, we know that someday he'll give them to his man, Antichrist. Revelation 13.2, speaking of the beast, Antichrist, says that the dragon, Satan, gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So these kingdoms are Satan's to give, and he will give them. Jesus doesn't challenge that rulership that Satan claims. In fact, God gives the world to Adam in Genesis 2. This is yours. Have dominion over it. Subdue it. And Adam gives the world to Satan. He forfeits the title deed to the earth in Genesis 3 when he sins. Christ paid to redeem the world back to him on the cross. But he doesn't take possession of his purchased world until he takes that scroll in Genesis, not Genesis, Revelation 5. Okay, the title deed to the earth. He's the only one found worthy to redeem creation. In Revelation 5, he opens the seals of that scroll and takes back what he has already purchased. Interesting in the Hebrew culture in this time, the events of purchasing and taking possession were thought of as two separate events. We think of buying something today as going to the store, you exchange money and you get the product. And we think of that as one event as buying. But in their culture, in their space, those were two different transactions. There was the purchase and there was the taking control of the product that you purchased. Interesting that we see that kind of split up here with Jesus. He paid for it on the cross. He takes possession of it much later. How does Jesus respond to Satan here? Again, it's by quoting scripture. This time it's Deuteronomy 6.13. This serpent also appeals to Eve's lust of the eyes. She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes, this fruit. The fruit actually looked attractive. And the enemy's offers don't usually look terrible, do they? They look good. They look good. Verse 9 in Luke 4. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. What did Satan do here? Along the same lines, but he uses scripture. He quotes scripture to Jesus. Satan knows his Bible. He quoted scripture back to Jesus, and incorrectly, of course. He doesn't quote it correctly because Jesus corrects him. You shall not tempt or test the Lord your God. That should be sobering to each and every one of us, especially me. When we handle scripture, we must be careful to divide it rightly, to draw straight lines. We can't handle it willy-nilly. There has to be purpose. There has to be the Spirit guiding us, truly. Because without that, we can't understand the things of the Spirit. I believe it was Paul who wrote, the carnal man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit. And he can't without the Spirit. 
We have to be reverent when we approach the scripture. This quote that Jesus uses is from Deuteronomy 6.16, which speaks of the time when the Israelites spoke against God and his anointed Moses. And they were basically complaining about the manna and their whole situation in the wilderness. In response, God sent poisonous snakes into their camp, and some died from those snakes. But after they entreated Moses to entreat God, God made a way of healing for them. There was this bronze serpent, this image that they put on the hill. And all they had to do was look at that bronze serpent, and they would be healed from this poisonous snake bite. This is also referenced in 1 Corinthians 10.9, when Paul was giving some lessons from the Old Testament. It says, Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents, referencing that time in the wilderness. Now, of course, this is Satan's appeal to the pride of life now, the last of these three fronts. And for Eve, it was seeing that the tree was desirable to make one wise. That was his appeal to Eve, pride of life. So Jesus correctly divides the word of truth as a defense against his temptation. This is the key. In 1 John 2.14, John writes, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. It's no coincidence there that the word of God abides within the young men who have overcome the wicked one. The Holy Spirit will certainly come to your aid in moments of temptation, and he'll call to mind the scriptures that apply in your situation. But you can't remember things that you've never even read. You can't call to mind things you've never heard. It's on you to put those references in your mind in the first place. We have to spend time in God's word and he will come to our aid. Now let's close Luke 4, come back to Genesis 3 verse 6. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. It seems that Satan came to Eve when she was apart from Adam. There wasn't that connection there. This made her more vulnerable to his prying attacks. Not only was Adam responsible for his family, but as the head of the human race, he was responsible for the sin that then permeated humanity and all of creation. He was in a very important role here. And even though Eve sinned first chronologically, the Bible never says that sin entered through Eve. Always that sin entered through Adam. Why is that? Why is that? Paul provides a little distinction between Adam's and Eve's sins. In 1 Timothy 2.14, he writes, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. There was an outside influence exerted on Eve, Satan's temptation. And because of that deception, she fell into sin. But it seems that Adam took the fruit his wife gave him knowing what he was doing. He was not deceived like she was. It was a deliberate going against God. I just tried to imagine this scene where Eve comes walking up to Adam 
and he sees her looking so dim, almost burnt out, carrying this fruit. He's thinking, what just happened? What made Adam want to eat it too? I don't know. Some see him as a type of Christ here, wanting rather to be with his bride in a fallen state than apart from her. And so he became sin for her so he could share in her suffering. But I think there's something very wrong with this thought. It makes Adam out to be noble in his sin. There's no hint anywhere in Scripture that what Adam did here was right. There's no hint of anything positive about his decision to rebel against God. And so I think that that specific comparison, although Adam is certainly a type of Christ, this specific comparison is a bit clumsy in my opinion, and it creates some dangerous implications. If the first sin was noble, what does that mean for us? You know, so I, I don't take that view. There are teachers who take that view. But at the end of the day, it's hard to really say why Adam did what he did. But at the core of it, it would seem to simply be a rebellion against God. And after all, that is what sin is at its core. A.W. Tozer said this about sin in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Sin has many manifestations, but its essence is one. A moral being created to worship before the throne of God sits on the throne of his own selfhood and from that elevated position declares, I am. That is sin in its concentrated essence. Yet because it is natural, it appears to be good. It is only when in the gospel the soul is brought before the face of the most holy one without the protective shield of ignorance that the frightful moral incongruity is brought home to the conscience. A.W. Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy. He's wordy, but what he's essentially saying is that sin is a result of man placing himself where God should be on the throne of his life, saying, my moral judgments are higher than God's. And we're blind to the fact that we even do this until the gospel shines a light on our own ignorance in order to bring this to our attention. We don't even know we're in sin until the gospel really breaks through. And certainly true repentance cannot be found until we realize our sinful state. If I'm perfect, I don't need a savior. I don't need someone to die on my behalf. But if I'm not perfect, ooh, that changes things. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. I don't think that we'll ever understand the true extent of this tragedy, this side of eternity. What all was lost in this event of the fall. But certainly the most important was our ability to enjoy a close fellowship with God, a communion with him. And in this verse, we see man's first attempt at religion. In the Latin, religio is derived from religare. Re, meaning again, and ligare, bind or connect. Religion is man's attempt to reconnect with God. Maybe these coverings can make us acceptable to God. 
Maybe this is what will save us, bring us back into communion with him. These fig leaves. As silly as that sounds to us, none of man's subsequent attempts at relinking with God have been any better. They're all silly. Now, it's Isaiah that tells us that our righteousnesses, our works, are as filthy rags to God. Filthy rags for coverings. Quite simply, man reaching to God's holiness is an impossible task. But this is what every religion makes an attempt at. Relinking with God. And I thank God that he doesn't expect us to make that reconnection, but that he's reached out in love for us. It's the only way that it could be. Romans 5, 18 and 19. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, talking about a literal Adam, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, talking about Jesus, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Amen to that. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The shame of their nakedness, the weight of their sin, forced them for the first time to hide themselves from God. How sad is that? What used to be, no doubt, their favorite time of day, the cool of the day when God would come down and walk with them, turned frightening. They were scared because they knew that they had transgressed a holy God. How sad. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Now, we've already made the point that God sought after Adam instead of Eve. So I want you to pay attention to something else. What is God's response to their sin? What kind of tone does he use with them? Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. God said to him, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? What is the consistent pattern of God's response to their sin? He's not accusatory or demeaning. He's not saying, gotcha. You know, I put that tree there. I'm, I got you. That's not his attitude. He's not like a cop waiting for you to speed by so he can give you a ticket. And that's what a lot of people think of God as. Even a lot of younger Christians think of God as this cop setting a speed trap for us, just waiting to get us. That's not God at all. Satan is the accuser, not God. God approaches Adam lovingly. Where are you? And it's not that he was seeking information. He knew where Adam was. Can anyone hide himself in secret places? So I shall not see him, says the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? Jeremiah twenty three twenty four. No, he's not asking for information, but illumination. Have you eaten what I told you not to eat? And it seems here that God is giving Adam an opportunity to come clean, to confess. What would have happened if Adam took that opportunity? No way of knowing. We won't even venture there. 
Adam chose to not confess what he had done. It's actually sad but comical, his response. It's the first time that man blames wife for his problems, you know, and it's been happening ever since. Then the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. He doesn't take responsibility for what he did. But even worse than that, the real thrust of what Adam is saying here puts God to blame for Adam's sin. The woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. You've all known someone who consistently makes bad choices. They're running around on their spouse. They're hopping around the bars. They're trying to keep God as far away from their lives as possible. Then something bad happens. Oh, and they turn and they say, how could God allow this to happen to me? You know, and they may even say, why did God do this to me? How could a loving God let this happen to me? You know, my wife has left me. My kids are crying. They're sitting in shambles, missing me, missing their their parents. How could God do this to me? But the whole time, they were trying to keep God as far away from them as possible. We all know somebody who's had that sort of situation. Like, dude, how are you going to put this on God? You are the one that is running from him. And here Adam is passing the blame to God. The woman you gave me did this. Misguided. Verse 13, And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me. And I ate. Naturally, the woman passes the blame to the serpent, saying, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. What a sad reality that we struggle so much just to take responsibility of our sins. And to be honest, that's a great win for the enemy because we can't come to repentance when we're constantly ducking and dodging the reality of our sins. Now, in wrapping up this morning, I want to review what we've learned from the first man and first woman in the first half of this chapter. Three things. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Those are the three entry points that the enemy uses to tempt us. The first mistake, though, that Eve makes in this whole ordeal is sticking around and actually having a conversation with this serpent. Probably the worst place for an alcoholic to hang out is at a bar. You know, this just makes sense. I was listening to someone, not a Christian, who was talking about it was a female. She was talking about getting out of her alcoholism. And she said, man, the first thing I did and the first thing I realized I needed to do was stop hanging out with the people who were drinking all the time. It's like, wow, what a concept. It seems such a, a basic thing to us. But it's, it's different in practice. The fact is, if you want to change what you do, you have to change out who you spend time around. Eve probably should have just left the situation. And if it wasn't enough to have a snake talking to her, what really should have tipped her off was the fact that he was questioning God. At that point, I'm out of there. We know that this is not a good situation. Now, I do think that Jesus, in his temptation, was in a different situation. He was there to fulfill some things. 
He had to fulfill his purpose on the earth. And part of that, Hebrews tells us, was to be tempted in every way that we are. He had to endure those temptations in order to fulfill his purpose on earth. But we definitely don't have to stick around when we're being tempted. We can remove ourselves from those kinds of situations. But if you find yourself in the midst of a temptation, what is your defense? The whole armor of God. The whole armor of God. Ephesians 6. Know the scripture, know what Jesus says, and use the truth to fight the lies. Satan is the father of lies. He comes with deception. And we don't have time to get into this armor of God this morning, but that's a fascinating, fascinating study. These tactics that we can employ don't just apply to attacks from the enemy. Remember, we have three adversaries, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil's just one of our adversaries. Look, the chances are you're never going to be tempted by Satan himself. Satan is a finite being. He can't be in more than one place at any given time. He's not omnipresent like God is. God can be anywhere all at once. Satan is bound in that way. I'm sure that Satan is more concerned with the Billy Grahams of the world, the Chuck Smiths of the world, than he is with me and you. He's got better things to do. And he does, however, have a lot of minions to help him get at us. But there's two extremes to this. Some people see the devil behind every corner. Some people deny his very existence. The truth, as most things, lies in the middle. We don't want to psych ourselves out looking for Satan, but we also don't want to deny that he is a very real threat. Now, of course, we have power through Jesus Christ to defeat him, and that's the only way that we could ever defeat him. But I tend to think that we don't need much help in our sinning. We can handle that by ourselves. James writes, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. James 1.15 Our own fleshly desires are usually the only thing it takes to entice us to sin. We hear people say too often, the devil made me do it. All right, that's the kind of classic cop-out answer. The devil made me do it. But in reality, that's just not the case. No, you chose to go against what you know is right. Quit giving Satan so much credit. It's credit that he doesn't deserve. Now, next week, we'll look at the first messianic prophecy in the Bible. The first time that the work of Jesus is foreshadowed. And it's the beginning of God's plan of redemption for mankind. You know, we've set the stage here this morning. Man has fallen, has fractured this communion that we once had with God. We provide a sinner. God provides the Savior. See, that's the deal that he's worked out. And it's the best deal going. You won't find anything that beats that at Walmart. Next week, we have the curse, the curse proper. And when we talk about the curse, just using those words, this is what we're talking about. The curse. There's plenty of curses in the Bible. This is the curse. God first turns to the serpent, gives this prophecy of things to come with Jesus, defeating him. Then he turns to the other two, meads out their curses. And 
the sin that has come into the world produced death, just as God said it surely would, and it spreads to all of creation. And this entropy, this bondage of decay or corruption, as Paul calls it, is introduced into creation. The rest of the Bible is, in effect, a detailing of how that prophecy in Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled. So I hope that you'll be able to make it for that study next week. Let's close this morning with prayer. Please pray with me. Thank you.